Theological education should be affordable. Seminary students should not have to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, our students pay a base of $75 per credit hour and a $375 per semester fee. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. This afternoon, with the time that we have together, I wanted to begin a series on the subject of family worship. Family worship is something that we covenant to do as members of the church together. Uh, It's something that is mentioned in the constitution of our church as one of the responsibilities incumbent on the members of the church. It is to to disciple their children uh, and their families, that our homes would be ordered according to the mind and will of God. But some might wonder at this practice. It's something that is, I think, very strange to most Christians today. Uh, the The very term family worship isn't something that a lot of people are very familiar with. And if you've come into a Reformed context and you've uh, you've never heard of that idea and that term, then that's something perhaps that's new to you, entirely new to you, and something perhaps that you wonder whether or not that's even in the Bible. We know about worship in the church, that makes sense, but worship in families? Uh, the sad reality is, is that family worship is one of the distinctive things that we have uh, given to us in the Word of God And it was also one of those things that was recovered in the Reformation. Now, when we think about things that were recovered in the Reformation, we're grateful for uh, biblical worship in the church, uh, a biblical approach to the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, a biblical approach to how the church should be governed, a biblical understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and justification by faith alone apart from the works of the law. But something you might not think about is the subject of family worship. But I would submit to you, family worship is one of the blessings that was recovered for us, and I stress that word recovered, in the Protestant Reformation. So this afternoon, as we commence this series, the most important question for us always is this, what saith the Scriptures? It is not enough for your pastor to say, this would be good for you to do. It's not enough for you to acknowledge perhaps the benefits that would come from it. It is most important and most necessary that we have our minds convinced from the Word of God that this is something that the Word of God instructs and teaches us to do. So in this series, I would propose to just have four messages. There may be five, but right now I'm only planning four. And the four subjects I want to address in the coming weeks are these. Family worship's biblical and theological foundations, and that's what we're going to address this afternoon. Secondly, it's practical implementation. How do you do it? What does it look like? Thirdly, I'd like us to consider its obstacles and its objections those things that will usually be raised by someone who says, hey, wait a minute, I can't do that or I don't need to. And then fourthly, we'll consider its motivations and its rewards. What things we can expect as blessings that come in the fulfillment of this responsibility, this biblical duty. Well, this brings us to the first and most obvious question. What do you mean by family worship? Uh, in his book, Thoughts on Family Worship, James Alexander, a Presbyterian ministry, a minister of the 19th century, defined it this way. Family worship, he says, 
As the name imports, is the joint worship rendered to God by all the members of a household. You could just take the two words as giving us our definition. But it does need to be stressed that we understand what a family is and then what worship is. When we say family worship, we're distinguishing it from church worship. We're not saying that what we're describing or talking about in this series is one and the same with that worship that is offered within the context of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will worship God in ways that would not be, would not be proper for Him to be worshipped in your own home. In your own home, you will not observe the ordinance of baptism or the Lord's Supper. And you could take up an offering, but I don't know how... I don't know how effective that would be either. Now, there are things you're going to do in your family worship that are distinct from what's going to be done in the public worship of God in His church. So we're talking about the worship of the family. And that, of course, brings into mind, what is the family? Because as I start this series, I know that some of you perhaps are saying, my kids are growing and out of the house, so you're not talking to me. This subject isn't relevant to me. Or maybe you have other circumstances that would make you think, it's not relevant to me. A family, according to the Word of God, is just this. One man and one woman united in marriage. That makes a family. Even if there are no children, that is a household, that is a family. And sometimes there is a tendency to talk about family worship almost exclusively in terms of the discipleship of young children. And this tends to make people think that once their children are older and out of the house, family worship is no longer an obligation. I would suggest to you that's not true. We are all in families. And we are not all in the same place in our families but I would submit to you, in as far as you have any part in your family, bringing the worship of God into that context is something that ought to be seriously thought about by all of us. So it's family worship. It's within the context of the family. It belongs to the sphere of the family. We know this from Scripture. Here we're told many times, over and over again, let all of the world praise the Lord. Let the nations Praise the Lord and sing unto Him. And this is something strange sometimes for evangelicals because evangelicals have a tendency to think, well, if you're not a believer, you don't need to praise the Lord. The entire intelligent creation is under a moral obligation to praise and exalt the living God. If they are ignorant of it or reject that truth, it makes no difference to the fact that they are obliged to. We acknowledge that there are three distinct spheres of authority within society. God has given us and instituted the family as one of those distinct spheres. In addition to the church and the civil magistrate, there is the family. To the church, He gives the power of the keys. To the state, He gives the power of the sword. To the family, He gives the power of the rod. But in each of these spheres, distinct as they are, they all are under God and obliged by God to render Him worship and honor and obedience. That's true for the family. It's true for the family that doesn't acknowledge God, but it's certainly true for the family that does, for the family that confesses the one true and living God. There ought to be worship in that place. So we're talking about family worship, but we're also talking about that second word, worship. And unlike uh, perhaps many people who would assume we all know what that word means, care needs to be taken that we're clear on this point. A family isn't just whatever we define it to be, as many people think today, and worship isn't whatever we define it to be. If God is clear in His word about anything, it's that He sets the parameters of acceptable worship. And some people are of the opinion sometimes that if you're not talking about the worship of the church, then talking about acceptable worship in any respect is irrelevant. You can do whatever you want. Worship God however you please in private or in your family. No. The rule is always the same. 
It's always the Word of God. And while the family is distinct from the church, we still take our cues from Scripture. The most basic elements of that are ascribing praise and honor and worship to God. Uh, Webster, in his 1828 dictionary, a resource that I have always appreciated for this reason, it's so saturated with Scripture. Uh, His dictionary was always wanting to bring the Word of God into his own definitions, but this is how he defines worship. It is chiefly and eminently the act of paying divine honors to the supreme being or giving that reverage and homage to him in religious exercises consisting in adoration, confession, prayer, thanksgiving, and the like. Now, at this point, someone will ask the question and say, but isn't all of our life supposed to be a life of worship? And of course, we could turn to passages like Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 as an example of that that kind of thinking. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 there, the, the Apostle Paul exhorts us. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, or maybe rendered your reasonable act of worship. Well, there, the Apostle Paul is not merely talking about the stated times of the worship of God. He's talking about the whole life of a believer. And while we would admit, readily admit, that our lives are to be lives that are devoted and consecrated to God in every respect, and that is the least that we can do to worship our God, we would also acknowledge that there are stated times for prayer and the worship of God. And this is one of the mistakes, I think, that creeps into people's thinking. Someone will say, well, you can worship God doing anything, and therefore I don't need to worry about actually singing His praises. I don't need to worry about having stated times of prayer. I don't need to listen to His Word read or preached. I don't need to gather with His people. Everything I do is worship. Well, everything you do may be worshipful. It may be honoring to God. But let me say, the life that never has stated times for the purposeful exercises of God's worship in private or in the family or in the church is not a family that's is not a life that's really worshiping God at all. Our ordinary activities may bring honor and glory to God, but let's be clear, the one who truly loves God will devote himself to those things which God has commanded him to do. And beloved, the scriptures are clear. We're commanded we're commanded to pray to God. We're commanded to sing his praise. We're commanded to hear and read His Word. All of these things are commanded of us. And they're not just commanded commandments given exclusively to the church. They're given to us as a church, yes, but they're given to you as an individual in your capacity, in your life, in your context, but they're also given to our families. Let me say, they're also given to our broader society. We think about what we want our society to look like. I'll tell you what I pray for when I pray for our nation. I want a nation that loves God's Word. I want a society that sings His praise. I want a, I want a people that are quick to call upon His name, quick to repent of its sins, and desirous to walk in obedience to His will. That's what I want for America. I hope that's what you want for America. Because that's what's owed to God. That's His due. Well, beloved, this is family worship then. We're talking about this within the context of family worship. But do we see this in the Bible? In the Word of God, I'm going to take us through something the the old rabbis would call a string of pearls, a series of scriptures. We're going to survey the Word of God and considering the many instances of family worship We don't find, and I think it's right to admit, there is not an explicit proof text where you could point to it and say, you will worship God in your family. But does that mean that there isn't a clear 
teaching from the scriptures about the duty of families to call upon the name of God? I believe there is. I think it's overwhelming. So turn with me in your Bibles. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Let's remember that in the, in the creation, God created man to glorify him. This was the purpose of creation. Man was created to glorify God and to hold communion with the living God. I agree with those commentators who say that the Garden of Eden was, as it were, a, a, a type of the tabernacle and the temple. It was that place where the Lord held special communion and fellowship with His intelligent beings, His creatures, Adam and Eve. And we know that because what we find in Genesis chapter 3, following the fall, they, they succumb to the temptation of Satan. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says in verse 7 that their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. And then they tried to cover their nakedness by sewing aprons for themselves, coverings for themselves to cover their shame and the sense of shame that they had. And then they hid. It says, verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, walking in the garden in the cool of the day is walking in the garden at the close of the day. It's walking in the time when sun begins to set. I agree with those commentators who see here that it's likely the case that there was a pattern in the communion that God held with Adam and Eve in that place. It was a pattern of morning and evening. So we find then that the Lord has come to His temple in the evening to hold communion with Adam and Eve. This was why they were created. Now a family, I said, is just one man and one woman united in marriage. And we find their worship begins here. But let's also note this. They sin against God and God judges them. At this point in their communion with God, there would have been no need for a sacrifice prior to their sin. But everything's going to change now. Now there is a hard and fast obstacle to their communion with God, and it is their sin. God makes it clear that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. He sacrifices two animals. He uses the skin to cover them. And from, there, from uh, forever thereafter, no one can come to God except through the shedding of blood by way of sacrifice. And that's true for us. We have not worshipped today. We have not gone into God's presence. We have not lifted to Him our prayers and praises except through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the new and living way. Well, this was true then. And it says, we're told, that the Lord did this. And it must, have, it must have been clear to Adam and Eve that the way to go to God is by way of sacrifice. If you're going to go to God in worship, there has to be sacrifice. It seems clear to me that Adam and Eve must have taught this to their sons, Cain and Abel. Because we find that when they go to God, one goes by way of blood sacrifice and another goes by way of just burning the crops or offering the crops that he had raised and without the shedding of blood. Well, here's what you find, beginning at verse the second part of verse 2. There it says they did this. But notice, it says in verse 5, But unto Cain and his offering the Lord did not have respect. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Notice what the Lord says to Cain. He says in verse 7, If you do well shall you not be accepted. And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. The clear implication of the Lord's words to Cain are that Cain knew the difference between doing well and not doing well in his worship. And that Cain was without excuse in the way that he approached God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, for instance, that Abel went in faith. We feel sure Cain did not. But where is that faith? The faith that we exhibit toward God in His worship is faith in His revealed will. How did Cain exhibit his faith 
in God. He exhibited faith in God by offering a sacrifice and shedding blood. This is what he had been instructed in. And this is what Cain failed to observe in his approach to God. He was guilty of will worship. I say all this to make this point. It seems clear that the very first family worshipped God prior to the fall. And then when sin entered the situation, this did not change. It did not change the fact that they still worshipped and called upon God, but that now, now they had to worship Him through sacrifice and the shedding of blood. At the end of chapter 4, after Seth is born to replace Abel, and Seth begets Enos, there's an interesting statement that concludes chapter 4. It says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And this means in a formal way. And it is in connection with the godly line of Seth, through which will come Abraham and the Messiah. So we find two lines in existence. There's the godly line and the ungodly line that run up into the, up into the flood. What is it said of that godly line? Those in the earth that have descended from Seth, it says this, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now there is no church, there is no temple worship, there is no ceremonial law, there is none of these things. So what was the context in which this happened? It happened within the context of families. And men specifically leading their families. Fathers, heads of households, who had the charge and responsibility of leading and governing their families, leading them specifically in this way, to call upon the name of God in specific, purposeful worship. The offering of prayers, the offering of sacrifices, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the rehearsal of God's promises. We find then this pattern that sets out at an early time. Now, I don't think it's family worship was limited to the godly line. Uh, one, of the, one of the funniest questions in the Bible uh, was, the, was the question of Rachel's father when he caught up to her and, and Jacob when they fled. He said, why did you steal my gods? And she did. She, she stole her father's gods. And you remember, she put them under a bushel, and then she sat on him. When he came in the tent, he's looking for his gods. That is, his little carved images. What did you do with my gods? He thinks Jacob took them. Rachel took them. And why did she take them? Probably because they, they were dear to her. Probably because she superstitiously imagined that they had some power. But here you'll note they had been brought up with family worship, it would seem. When, when Joshua puts the question to Israel, he says, Choose you this day who you will serve, the gods on the other side of the river or the true God. But notice his language. He doesn't say, Choose you this day if you will serve, if you will worship. He only says, Who will you worship? Family worship then was a universal practice in this period by both the unbelieving and the ungodly who worshipped pagans, sticks and stones, and those who worshipped the true God. And we find that. We find it with Noah. No sooner than Noah is off of the ark, but it says in Genesis 8 and verse 20, he did what? He built an altar. He built an altar and he worshipped God. He made a sacrifice to God, and it says the smell of it was pleasing to God, and that's when God said, I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. So instinctive was this practice, so, so ubiquitous, that this was the first and most obvious act of Noah when he exited the ark. It was to make a sacrifice and worship God. Now, he does this as the head of the human race. But he also does this as the head of his own family, as the whole human race at that point was just his family. Not in line with Genesis, but I think chronological, you could say the same thing about Job. Job does this. The beginning of Job's, the book of Job, what are we told? We're told that all of his children had been feasting 
They'd been going to one another's house in a, in a season of feasting. But what does Job do? He calls all of his children together. When that's all said and done, he says he, he sanctifies them. He makes a sacrifice and he calls upon the name of the Lord. He says, why? Because it may be that they sinned in their hearts. It sinned in their hearts. So it was a need for them to do this. But here's the thing. At the end of that description, it says, so did Job always, or so did Job continually. Job chapter 1 and verse 5. In other words, this was the stated practice and pattern of Job's fathership over his family. His kids expected it. They knew exactly what was coming when the feasting was over. Their father was going to want them at the house, and they were going to call upon the name of God in worship. We find this with Abraham. We consider Abraham in Genesis, beginning at Genesis chapter 12. When God calls Abraham out of the land of the Chaldees, and he makes several successive journeys through that trip until he arrives at his settled place in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 12. You know what it says. It says, The Lord appeared unto Abraham and said unto him, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And what does Abraham do? There builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. What was the altar for? It was for making a sacrifice. And what did that mean? It meant that he was going to worship. He was going to call upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 13 and verse 4. He comes to the place between Bethel and Hai. He says, Unto that place, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And what does he do? It says, Abram, there he called upon the name of the Lord. He made a sacrifice. And then he worshipped and called upon the name of the Lord. It continues. Verse 18. Same, same chapter. Chapter 13, verse 18. It says, Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron. And what does he do when he gets there? It says, there he built an altar unto the Lord. It would seem that everywhere Abraham goes, he doesn't stop anywhere for any length of time without an altar so that he may make a sacrifice so that he may call upon the name of the Lord. Briefly, if you'll look with me at Genesis 18, beginning at verse 16, we'll notice there what it says. It says, And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. The angels are going to destroy the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's walking with them. Verse 17, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? He says in verse 19, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken, to, spoken of him. Now let's be clear here. Abraham is described by the Lord as being one who would command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord. Now what's the way of the Lord? Well, in one sense, it's the moral rectitude and uprightness that Abraham exhibits in his own life. It's that careful conformity to God's ways and law. But it's not only that. It also consists of that religious worship of God that Abraham had as a practice in his life. He has as a habit the worship of the living God. Everywhere he goes, he builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. This is the way of the Lord described here. He walks in this way. He communes with the living God. And there he is said... To not only do this, but to command his children and his household after him. With Abraham, there was not a choice. He wasn't the kind of dad who said, you know, he had a 16-year-old who said, you know, I, 
I don't want to go to church anymore. Abraham didn't have any time for that. In Abraham's household, you are going to worship the Lord, whether you wanted to or not. Because in his mind, it was, it was not a question of whether we would worship the Lord. He says, just like with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. We live lives in conformity with His law. We walk in obedience to His ways. But this includes, and must necessarily include, stated times of calling upon His name and praising His goodness. This is what Abraham does. He commands his children and his household after him. Men, this is the question for us. Do you command your household and your children after you? Now, obviously, there's a, uh, there's a sense in which I'm, I'm, I'm aware of everybody's different circumstances. But do you take it, especially you husbands and fathers, do you take it as a responsibility from God to command your children and your household to walk in the ways of the Lord, to keep those ways. We must not think about our children. We must not think about our spouses in terms of, well, they do their thing and I do my thing. It's not the mindset that we see in Scripture, but rather one says, no, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. And that as a husband, as a father, I have this obligation laid upon me that for my house, I will command my children and my household after me. Beloved, we have so much influence over our children at a young age. God forbid that we squander it by being inconsistent or indifferent about our children's participation in the worship of the church at a young age. If they go out from under our roof and they never darken the door of a church again, let it not be said that it wasn't because we taught them the importance of worshiping God, of calling upon His name, both in the context of the church and also in the home. So here we see Abraham. Also the families of Israel were instructed in these things. And that great confession which God gives to His people in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is the central confession of the Jewish faith. There in verse 3 it says, Hear therefore, O Israel, observe and do it, that it may be well with thee, and that thou may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that flows with milk and honey. And again, he says here. Now, what is he saying by here? He's not just saying, hey, let this sound echo over your eardrum. No, here the sense of here is to hear by way of faith, to hear in a believing and an obedient way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. This is who he is. This is your duty to him. To love him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. But further, how does one know that one has, is, is truly loving God? He says further this, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. You'll not just have a Bible handy. You'll have God's Word hidden in your heart. You'll be intimately acquainted with the contents of Scripture. For what purpose? Verse 7, That thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children, and shalt talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You will bind them for a sign upon your hand. They will be as frontlets on your eyes. You'll write them on the posts of your house and on your gates. Now, the, the, uh, the Orthodox Jews really do that. They literally do that. You go to a Jewish house, there's a mezuzah uh, nailed to the doorpost. Inside the mezuzah is a copy of the law. And if you've ever seen in their observances, they take that thing and they strap it around their arm and then they put the little box and they strap it to their head. Inside those boxes is a copy of the law. I don't think really 
this is ever in, was ever intended to be taken in that way. What here is being stressed by way of hyperbole is just how religious we were to be in bringing our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Just how diligent His people were to be in discipling their children and instructing them in the things of God. And it's very diligent. It's not just in stated times of family worship, though that is one necessary component. But what does he say? He says, when you're walking, by, when you're walking in the way, when they were walking to this destination or they're going to market, well, there's an opportunity. Beloved, it's the same for us. There's opportunities when we're riding in the car and everything's kind of quiet. Talk to your kids about the things of God. You're going to be riding home, some of you, and you'll have the opportunity to talk about the things you heard in God's Word today. Do you do that? Do you redeem that time? Sitting around your table, sitting around the living room in the evening. There's never a time where there isn't an opportunity presented to us to speak and talk about the things of God and to instruct our children in those things. So we see this was a general instruction given to all of the families in Israel as a statute forevermore. I mentioned Joshua. I won't even, we don't even really need to turn there, but we do note this. Joshua makes it clear what he says, and this is at the close of his earthly race. This is when he is dying. He's going off the scene in Joshua 24. When he makes this statement, choose you this day who you will serve. Whether you'll serve the gods of the nations around us, whether you'll serve the Lord, there's a choice to be made. It is not a question for us if our families will worship. It is a question of what or who our families will worship. You are setting an example of worship to your children, either consciously or unconsciously. You are telling your children what's valuable. And in a secular and mostly atheistic society like the one we live in now, it's tempting to think that we're not like those days when there were pagans who worshipped other gods and then there were people who worshipped the true God. Well, most of the families in America, well, they just don't worship anything. You couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more mistaken. Every family sets a pattern of worship for its children. What is it? Maybe it's money and material things. Maybe it is pleasures and enjoyments of this life. Maybe it's sports and entertainment. But whatever it is, it's being modeled for those children. Children are being brought up to worship things. Every child is brought up to worship something. The question for us is this. Who are we leading our families to worship? Is it the God of Mammon? Or is it the God of the Bible? Beloved, to worship the God of Mammon requires very little effort. It's easy. But if you would lead your families to worship the true and living God, well, that requires grace, great grace, and a sincere earnestness about the benefit that comes from it. Well, thus far you see the examples taken from the Old Testament. There are, there are, there are more. There are plenty more, but I'll, I'll not go into that. I'll simply turn your attention now to the New Testament. I only want to touch on two texts. One from the Apostle Paul and one from the Apostle Peter. In Ephesians chapter 6, this is a portion of Scripture very well known. In Ephesians chapter 6, we have that table of duties that begins in chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. A wife's submission to her husband, a husband's love for his wife. This continues in chapter 6 with the duty of children and then the duty of fathers and then the duty of servants and masters. But notice the responsibility given specifically 
to fathers. There in chapter 6 and verse 4, he says, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now we need to notice that phrase at the very end, of the Lord. What is the responsibility of a Christian father? It's not just to bring them up, bring them up healthy, bring them up with a good education. It's to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All of our parenting then is qualified by this phrase, of the Lord. And this means that the discipline that we exercise over our children, the the chastening of our children, is to be governed by what? It's to be governed by the Word of God. But it's not enough that we discipline our children when they do things that they shouldn't do, but this must be joined with admonition, instruction. You know the old phrase, Daddy, don't preach. Every father is a preacher. Every father must be a preacher. A godly father will preach to his children. Every godly father, every godly mother will do so with an open Bible. It's the best thing you can do as a parent. Don't just tell your children that something is wrong. Open your Bible and put your finger on the verse and make them read it. This is something that will leave an indelible impression on them. My my parents do not disciplinely and they don't tell me things just because they say so. They're bringing me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, this is not just correcting them when they're wrong. It's holistic. It's holistic. It takes into account the entire care for the development and understanding and educating educating a well-formed mind in the things of God. It will not happen by accident. This is what Paul says the duty of fathers is. Is this what we find ourselves doing? Can we say that with our children, they were bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? You say, well, yes, but that's children. What about wives? 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says this, and this relates to women speaking in the church. He says in verse 34 and 35, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Paul does seem to understand and assume that a husband is someone that a wife would be able to look to to explain the things of God to. If she had questions about things in the worship of the church, if she has questions about things in the Bible, that she could speak to her husband. She ought to look to her husband for guidance in these things. Maybe some of you are hearing that and you're thinking, oh me. Is Paul saying that all of us have to be first-rate theologians? No. But he is saying that, generally speaking, that responsibility falls to a husband. So, as it relates to Paul, as it relates to wives and children, there was a unique role for a man to command his children and his wife and his household in the things of God. In general, a man ought to desire to be proficient enough in the Word of God to be able to speak competently about things when his wife has questions. Now, does that mean a husband can't, you know, email his pastor? (laughs) I got a really tough question from my wife. What do you say to that? Of course you can. But let's observe and and let's let's not miss what Paul is saying. Paul seems here to intimate very clearly the unique role of a husband in his family for instructing them in righteousness, teaching them the things of God, not just the common things of life, but the things of God. 
Final verse, and we'll close for today, concerns 1 Peter chapter 3. And this verse also addresses husbands and wives. And you, you know the verse, and it's maybe something that you've looked at and never quite thought about very carefully. But what Peter says is, again, in one of these sections that you'd call a table of duties, he's laying out the various duties that men and women have. But he says to men, he says, Ye husbands, dwell with them, that is your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. There's a couple of, there's some questions about that last phrase, that your prayers be not hindered. One way of uh, understanding it is to say that your is plural in the Greek. Well, who is the plural? Who is Peter saying? Who are your prayers? Is your reference to all the men in the church? All of your prayers be not hindered? Is that the plural idea? Or is the plural in reference to your prayers as husband and wife be not hindered? Your prayers together be not hindered. There are some good commentators, excellent commentators, uh, who take this reference by Peter, the statement by Peter, as a reference to their prayers together as a husband and wife, those prayers that took place as a matter of course in the context of their family. Now, if you think about it, in what way could your prayers be hindered? Well, we know our prayers can be hindered by sin. And, ca- and if we live in sin, God will shut his ears to our prayers. I think you could think about it in that way. I think it's also likely that what Peter means here is that family worship, family prayer, the the prayers, the united prayers of husband and wife and family would be absolutely hindered if there was not care to maintain love between husband and wife, if the husband was careless in the way he conducted himself toward his wife. I'll share with you a couple of excellent commentators on this verse. Edmund Clowney was a longtime professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, and this is what he says. Peter probably has in view the joint prayers of the couple. Husband and wife are to pray together. Their home is to be a temple where they together approach God in worship of a holy priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices. It's not likely going to happen if the relationship is so badly damaged by a husband's carelessness or sin. Albert Barnes also takes this view. He says, It's fairly implied here that it was supposed that there would be united or family prayer. The apostle is speaking of dwelling with the wife and dwelling with her in the right manner of treating her. And it's plainly supposed that united prayer would be one thing that would characterize that dwelling together. He does not direct that there should be prayer. He seems to take it for granted that there would be. And it may be remarked that where there is true religion in right exercise, there is prayer as a matter of course. The head of a family does not ask whether he must establish family worship. He does it as one of the spontaneous fruits of religion, as a thing concerning which no formal commandment is necessary. Prayer in the family is everywhere else a privilege. And the true question to be asked on the subject is not whether a man must, but whether he may pray. Finally, I'll share with you another eminent commentator, John Brown of Edinburgh, who sadly, his two-volume commentary on 1 Peter is no longer in print. But John Brown of Edinburgh says on this verse and this phrase, that your prayers be not hindered, he says, there seem in these words to be a direct reference to family prayer. If family prayers are hindered, then what hope is there of family prosperity? In the best sense of the words, there is none. And if conjugal duty is neglected, how can they but be hindered? They're in danger of being neglected or disturbed or discontinued altogether. Let then Christian husbands and wives too guard against everything which would hinder family prayer. Let their whole conduct toward each other look back and forward to the family altar. 
Let your lives together, the way you live together, the way you walk together, let all of it be in the shadow of your family altar. An altar like Abraham raised, we don't have a literal one. But let it be lived in this light. The way I conduct myself toward my wife, the way I conduct myself toward my husband, is the man with whom I'm going to have to pray with later. And do not leave off family prayers because you've, 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 there's, there's friction in the relationship. Let me tell you, the devil has no firmer foothold in a situation than when he's driven the two of you to conflict and then convinced both of you to forego praying together. Nothing is more likely to bring about healing and reconciliation than taking a knee before your Father in heaven and praying with and for one another. It's hard to be angry with someone you're praying for. It's impossible. Almost impossible. It's an act of love to pray for someone. And love begets love. All of this, beloved, is to do one thing. To set in your minds the clear pattern of the Old and New Testament as sufficiently exhibiting that worship was to be done within the context of the family and not just the church. And that we as as parents, as husbands and wives, but especially fathers, have the responsibility to take this duty seriously and to be diligent in its exercise. Let our minds be convinced from the Word of God, and then may God give us grace to obey. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.